This is the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. China is New Zealand's largest economic partner, making up 30% of our exports. But with Xi Jinping consolidating power, does New Zealand need to ask, how much is too much reliance on China? We're joined by Jason Young, Victoria University Associate Professor and Director of the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Centre to discuss the state of the New Zealand-China relationship. How is Xi Jinping's ongoing COVID-0 policy continuing to affect global supply chains? What will it mean for New Zealand exporters as China becomes less dependent on foreign trade and investment? And how will increasing political and humanitarian concerns shape future trade? We begin by asking Jason to explain some of the background to Xi Jinping and his plans for China as the president begins his third term. I guess how I found myself in this subject, uh, to, to be honest, was a, a series of uh, decisions that led me here. Um, there was a bit of accidental travel. Uh, I grew up in uh, Belclutha and, and Blenheim. Uh, went to university. After university, I, I worked at Parliament Library for a while. Uh, and then, like many New Zealanders, I got a little bit bored. And so I decided to travel the world. I went to Australia, which was uh, lovely, but again, very similar to New Zealand. So I ended up in Taiwan uh, teaching English. And when I got there, I was uh, immediately struck by just how interesting and vibrant uh, the place was there and society and people. Um, and of course, I, I couldn't speak the language. Uh, and so I started studying Chinese, uh, spent the next three, four years studying the language, and then came back to New Zealand. Uh, and that was about the time where New Zealand had just signed the free trade agreement, and there was a lot of interest uh, in China. And so I found um, a supervisor, did a master's, did a PhD, and then eventually ended up as the director of the China Center. Well, quite quite the journey. Um, obviously, China's also gone through quite a big journey recently too, over the last 30 years or so. Um, how, how would you, I mean, how do you in your, and when you think about it, how do you, how, how do you describe what's taken place and that, you know, the miracle that some people call um, of, of a completely reshaped nation? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's actually a really hard thing to describe uh, in the sense, uh, everyone's got their favorite statistic, um, which you know, sort of shows the magnitude of just the so social and economic changes that have happened in China over the last 30 years. Um, I, I like to sort of compare it to industrialization and urbanization in Europe over a couple of hundred years, squished into 30 years, um, just massive half a billion people moving from rural China into urban China, uh, going from being an incredibly poor and underdeveloped nation to the second largest economy in the world, the largest um, trading nation, the largest manufacturer, uh, just seeing the level of, of wealth and prosperity in the city areas. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a, an amazing transformation. And, and it's one of the reasons why I, I, I enjoy studying China is just to see just how quickly things are changing and, and, and changing in really interesting ways that whilst when we look at sort of urbanization, industrialization in Europe or, or in New Zealand, um, there's certainly some crossovers there, but there's also uh, some differences, which, which to me are really fascinating. When you're thinking about it, Jason, from an outsider looking in, a lot of what you get of China is around what the government kind of allows you to see. You know, we had the the the, the meeting over the weekend, which was very choreographed, other than a, a little bit of a, a whoopsie with one one of the uh, leading ex presidents getting escorted out, but. But when you're working there and, and, and living there, you're, you're actually, you know, which is what we all try and do when we go traveling is you're actually, you know, with the people, with the doing day, their day, going about their day to day. Is that completely different when, when you're there? And I guess it's, it's changed a lot over the years since you, you, you started your journey into um, exploring China and, and, and also Taiwan. Have you, have you noticed a, 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 not just a change in the political landscape and, and, the economy and, and those sorts of things, but also the people in their culture and the way they think about the world? Um, yeah, I mean, it's 
it, it's well to be to be perfectly frank it's quite it's quite challenging in the sense that so if i go to australia um <clears throat> i can end up in a fight in five minutes uh, about some issue and then that's all fine um i can have a discussion about this that and the other and people are very open uh, and um, free to talk whereas in china the the political and cultural um uh, environment is quite different i mean politically it's more there is an overarching framework uh, which is set by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and people tend to sort of discuss issues and debates within that framework um, and not show sort of um, publicly uh, any signs of disagreement or fractures within that overall political um, ideology and framework. So it does make it more challenging. Also, when I go to conferences in China, which um, before COVID I, I was doing regularly, uh, they're more... Um, uh, the more formal in the sense that people deliver their positions, uh, they stand up, they clap, um, and very, very structured. Uh, whereas a conference in New Zealand is, is usually a lot more raucous, um, people arguing, yelling things from the, from, from the seats, uh, et cetera. So, so there I are those. To, I need to go yeah. to your conferences. <laughs> I can assure <laughs> you that doesn't happen in a finance conference. <laughs> well, maybe it should. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, when you talk to people on the streets um, and, you know, have friends, then depending on what the subject is, uh, it's it's just normal, right? You know, people are people wherever they are uh, and people will, you know, disagree whether or not that movie was good, bad, ugly. Um, but also um, over the last, I would say, five, six years in particular, but really the last 10 years, we've seen uh, the impact of the raised uh, international tensions, uh, particularly between China and and the US, which which makes engagement uh, a lot harder, um, both within China and for Chinese people in in what they would describe as the West, or particularly in the United States. And so there are some some sort of residual effects of that uh, for New Zealand academics as well. What do they look like? Just a lack of people wanting to speak out publicly about certain things, or or, or is it less go between um, China coming? You know, people from China coming to New Zealand and the US to study, and vice versa. What, what what's the implications of that? Um, well, I mean, my own experience has been that this that, that we still have a lot of engagement, um, which is really great, and we want to uh, keep that as much as possible. Um, but uh, if you read the Chinese press um, and you read uh, Chinese official statements, you'll often see um, New Zealand sort of lumped in with a number of countries around the world, uh, and five in particular, uh, that are. Uh, have increasingly tense relationships with China. Um, and so that uh, sort of bleeds into um, the types of conversations that, that a New Zealander would have in China. But at the same time, there's also an effort to try to distinguish um, New Zealand's relationship with China uh, amongst some scholars. And I guess the other thing to, to point out also is because I do political science and international relations, I mean, I'm having the conversations which are I guess, the more sensitive ones. Whereas if you're working in um, a different field, for example, demographics, then I imagine it wouldn't be such such a, a challenging issue. When, when you think about um, how it's structured today and, I mean, how it's structured compared with, say, 30 years ago, it's, it, I mean, it was, it's always been centralised decision-making, but it seems to be becoming more centralised and, and correct me if, if, if you see it otherwise, and... Um, and the CCP's sort of, as in lockstep with its growing power as a nation, has been um, growing its power. Mm. Is that is that how you see it? Um, yeah. So, so I guess it's useful to to point out that you know the political system in China it's a people's republic. Uh, so, in a people's republic, you have um, one party that dominates, which is in this case the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and the Chinese Communist Party is is basically designed along the same lines as the um, the old Soviet Union party. Um, and and so it's a, a Leninist party. Uh, and as a Leninist party, uh, its job is to transform society, sort of see itself as playing a vanguard role, uh, dominate all branches of government, um, direct and intervene and shape economic and social outcomes. And so the, the very political structure is is, is quite different uh, to say uh, in New Zealand where the government, you have competition of parties and you also have um, free open media to criticise uh, and then you have the private sector which has its own space to do its own thing uh, and you also um, 
have checks and balances through, through, for example, the judiciary or through the legislature checking the executive. That that's very different in China, where um, power is consolidated within the political party, uh, and the political party's job <clears throat> is to try to transform society. Uh, and so, what's happened um, since, in particular, since reform and opening, when China moved away from a, a really um, traditional model of economic development, which was based on sort of planned economy, um, quota systems, um, um, you know, everybody having a, a job for life, heavily um, state-owned enterprise-dominated economy, and moved towards a more market-orientated system, which allowed sort of space for the private sector to grow and also opened up to the world, is that um, many people predicted that that would also lead to uh, changes within the political system uh, where you've basically got a Leninist party system um, with a more open market economy. Um, and many people predicted that that's, you know, those two things are almost contradictions and, and cannot exist. Uh, and so even under Hu Jintao years or Jiang Zemin years, the Deng Xiaoping years, uh, which were pre-Xi Jinping, um, people thought that that was actually what was happening. There were some incremental changes, institutionalization of um, uh, leadership transition, the regulatory and the legal system were being strengthened. Um, but then under Xi Jinping, we've seen uh, a very strong uh, assertion that China needs to maintain and hold on to that uh, Leninist party structure, that the Chinese Communist Party will be continue to be the vanguard party um, and that they will dominate and control uh, Chinese politics. A novice like myself, Jason, would say that that's that's all being done so President Xi can maintain power for you know the rest of his life. Is that a naive thing to look at, or is that something that that the whole Communist Party wants to see because it allows them to, I, I guess, continue their their journey? Or is it, or is this an individual deciding that and act, and a way that he can, I guess. You know, become you know some of them. Some people call it the emperor of of China. Yeah, so so I think it's impossible to know. Um, to be brutally honest, um, I think there are elements you can you can make arguments for elements of both. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party has ninety seven million members, and so they are a um, a dominant social force within China, um, all throughout different parts of China, and so it would be. And, you know, there's a lot of benefits that come with being a party member, including including access to the right people and to regulations. And you know, um, um, so, so it's very it's a very lucrative thing to have. And it's comes with a lot of prestige within China. Uh, so within the political party, I think they that when the Soviet Union fell and then all of the communist um, states within Eastern Europe fell, uh, there was sort of a crisis mode. Right. Everyone's like, oh, is this going to happen to us? How can we avoid this happening uh, in China? Because, of course, they wanted to maintain power. Uh, and so they studied it very, very carefully. Um, and I think under Hu Jintao, the assessment was that the Chinese Communist Party could stay in power if it continued to um, have a system where the people of China uh, became more prosperous uh, and felt like they were a part of the international community and had all the opportunities um, that they wanted to to live the type of life that they wanted. And so you saw more open media, uh, lots of open travel, um, and allowing the private sector to 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 flourish. Um, and of course, that also came with high levels of corruption um, and a lot of people complaining about corruption, particularly within the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and so it seems that Xi Jinping's assessment has been instead that they need to have a very strong party. Um, and part of having a strong party is to have uh, um, crackdowns on media freedom um, and to have a more, more focus on ideology and more focus on um, what they call social, socialist values, sort of uh, promoting this idealized uh, vision of what China should be. So sort of going back to this whole idea of... Um, that the role of the party is to transform society. Recently, um, like last week, and, and James alluded to it before, there was the National Congress. Can you, hmm. you know, it was a very important moment in China. Uh, what is it and why was it so <clears throat> important? And 
And then I guess there were some pretty important outcomes that came out of it, which I'd love to hear your take on. Yeah, so, so, the, so the National Congress, um, it's important to remember it's a party congress. So it's the five yearly congress of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and why is it important? Like, I mean, yeah, sure, the New Zealand media, sometimes they focus on the National Party Congress or the Labour Party Congress or the Greens Party Congress. Will James Shaw get back in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but not really that important. Um, in China, it is incredibly important because in a party state, a one-party state, what happens in the Chinese Communist Party is then transferred over into the government. So next year, when we have the National People's Congress, which is the legislature of China, the state body, um, all of the positions that have been determined at the Chinese Communist Party Congress uh, will then be transferred over. So the fact that Xi Jinping stayed on for a third term as general secretary of the um, Chinese Communist Party, as well as chairman of the Central Military Commission, means in all likelihood that next year in March, when the National People's Congress comes up, he will um, also stay on as president or, or chairman of the of the country um, and also uh, take the state role as chair of the um, uh, Central Military Commission. Uh, so that's important in the sense that uh, previously you used to have um, sort of a, two, a norm of only two years, uh, uh, two terms, sorry, which is 10 years at the top of the Chinese Communist Party. And then, of course, there were actual constitutional regulations, which meant that um, a president couldn't sit for more than 10 years, which were changed in 2018. So obviously, this is a clear indication that, that Xi Jinping will stay in power, that it's a quote-unquote new era, as he likes to say. Uh, and then also, if you look at the makeup of the um, Standing Committee of the Politburo, which is the sort of the core centre of, it's like the cabinet, small cabinet of the party, it's stacked with people who are very loyal to Xi Jinping. So you don't have the sort of the Li Keqiangs who are more sort of reform and opening minded or, or, or other types of factions like Hu Jintao used to be part of the China Youth League faction. And so it's basically a consolidation of power um, around Xi Jinping. Uh, some of the things that came out of the sort of the work reports and constitutional changes at the Congress were um, a, a lot more focus on ideology um, a lot more focus on security and sort of signaling that it's a troubling international environment and China needs to be strong. Uh, China needs to struggle, which is you know, communist language, which can be hard to for us to sort of get our head around. But it's a, it's a common phrase in China that it needs to struggle um, and that uh, there needs to be sort of a new development path that China needs to, to tread. What's, what's your take on the, um, that's the outwardly what they were sort of doing. What's your take on it in, in your assessment of what they were trying to, or did they achieve and, ha and have they achieved it? Because literally as we sit here on my Bloomberg screen, we, we have um, a story that just literally popped up, so, which is scary, maybe my phone's listening to me, um, uh, around the fact that is this just a way for, um, China to turn its back on sort of the globe and go more inward looking because um, in order to do that, you can take your the, the mind off the fact that economic growth might be slowing, slowing naturally anyway, because it's been booming for the last 30 years. And it's a different way to, um, I guess, be um, uh, a popular leader because you're protecting the people from from all these, you know, really terrible international um, troubles that we're, we're about to face. Is, it, is that a fair assessment? Because that's the Bloomberg Financial Times assessment, but, but I'm sure it's sort of more complex than that. And, and it would be interesting to see, you know, hear what, what, how you think the, um, you know, the, the journey goes from here. Yeah, so it, it's, it's contested is, is how I would um, put it. The interpretation, I mean, trying to understand Chinese politics is often like trying to read the tea leaves. Uh, there's, <laughs> it's, it's quite hard to to get a clear indication of what's really happening and what the direction of travel is. Um, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, yeah, China was closed. Um, it was, and it wasn't open. And it was from the 80s and 90s onwards that it opened up. Um, and many, many people in China would credit that opening to the rest of the world as being the, the key success um, that China has experienced over the last 30 years that, that really allowed China to develop and to be part of the international community, to become a, 
uh, a major power or a great power on the world stage. Um, the Chinese economy is slowing um, for a number of different reasons, uh, but I think you know some of the key reasons are that they've got an unbalanced growth model, uh, which worked for them spectacularly. You know, heavily investing um, uh, manufacturing on the east coast, uh, using uh, rural labour from the rural areas into into those manufacturing hubs manufacturing at really high standards and then exporting to um, affluent markets overseas was, was a great model, um, but that model has run its course. Uh, they need to strengthen their consumption to rebalance um, and create a more sustainable growth model. Whether or not they would close is, uh, in order to do that is a, I, I think in the extreme, I would be incredibly um, surprised and really, really worried if that actually happened, um, will they be as open and uh, as they were in, say, the early 2000s? I doubt it. Um, I think we're probably likely to see a more of a managed type of engagement between China and the world. You can already see that in policies such as dual circulation, which is sort of talking about uh, trying to match up the global economy with the domestic economy in order to, to stimulate um, domestic um, development. Uh, I guess that's where I would would see it. But but there are a lot of sorry, I'll just finish, there are a lot of commentators overseas who are very concerned, uh, particularly during COVID, because China's been closed for so long. That if China doesn't open up, then then that could create um, some really long lasting problems. Because on uh, in, in one hand, you can you can kind of see that perhaps. It's beneficial because we've had, like you said, this this growth that's worked really well, and and the the urbanisation and industrialisation of of the country has been a great success, not just for China but globally, as we've imported effectively cheaper goods and and cheap labour, um, and and that can't continue anymore for for a whole lot of reasons. What you know, and 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 perhaps that's a good thing, and actually them pivoting, given it's such a, a mighty economy, and then pivoting to be um, sorting out you know what's going on within the country first you know and then and then re-engaging but maybe that's according to these other commentators you talk about maybe that's being overly optimistic about the intentions of of what's going on yeah and i think and i think there's a couple of other reasons um around it as well which which are quite concerning um you mean you will be aware that over the last sort of five years in particular the u.s china relationship has, has just gone from rock bottom to rock bottom to new rock bottom um and we've seen um, uh, a type of economic nationalism emerge in China and in the United States, um, where which is really cutting off those types of, uh, from a purely commercial perspective, the types of um, cooperation and business deals uh, and collaborations that make perfect commercial sense are now being um, avoided uh, on the basis of sort of strategic concerns or um, other sort of uh, ideological concerns. So, 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 so I would be surprised if China closed down completely, um, but I would expect to see a more managed type of engagement uh, in the future. I know this is probably jumping ahead a bit, Stefan, but what, is, what does that mean for New Zealand? Because it, that, that has massive implications for um, our biggest trading partner and, and, and how we associate with them. On the other hand, they still need to import. Well, you know, thankfully, we are a primary producer of mostly food, and, and that is one um, good in the world that um, in terms of thing in the world that people people need including including China so um, d do you think this has big effects on on New Zealand's ability to do business with with China and our yeah, free no, trade think, agreement and, and how does that change yeah and so I think um, there's a few things there um, so so some of the fundamentals around New Zealand's in particular commodity exports to China are still there and I would expect them to to carry on. Um, and so there is that opportunity, uh, particularly in the agribusiness sector for selling um, good high quality food uh, into a growing market where um, they just don't have the, the, the number, that the amount of arable land um, that they would need to be able to produce the same types of high quality project pro products. Um, but there, there I think the question um, increasingly in New Zealand is, is more about how much is too much, um, sort of going back to the old days when New Zealand used to um, um, export most of its agri 
cultural commodities to the United Kingdom. And then suddenly they said, actually, we're going to join the um, European Economic Community. And we went, hang on a minute, what are we going to do? Uh, and we were sort of left. What do we do with our 65 million sheep? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, and so we had to scramble. A lot, we probably did. Uh, we had to scramble for a lot of different markets. Um, and so there is sort of a bit of a fear, particularly when analysts look at what happened with Australia in terms of some of the um, uh, sanctions that were put on certain types of uh, Australian exports into China, like wine and, and barley. Uh, and so people were sort of talking about, you know, how do you ma manage risk, particularly when there's a whole lot of politics in the world now. Um, and I think it's pretty clear where New Zealand's politics uh, sit on a number of different international issues and issues around human rights, etc. So, you know, potentially those types of political issues can't be avoided. Uh, so, there's, so there's that side of it. And then I think there's, there's a whole bunch of other areas which, um, depending on what type of New Zealand business we're talking about, but if we're talking about a high-tech business, then I think it becomes a question of um, if we see the US and China and things like the CHIPS Act and just this um, heightened security and peer competition going on where uh, it, it basically means that for New Zealand high-tech companies, you know, you choose, choose your market, um, but but you probably can't have both. Uh, and so there's there's that kind of high-tech decoupling going on in the world and, and, and um, or, or bifurcation of those types of supply chain markets um, that I think New Zealand businesses need to to, to get their head around. Xi um, is an interesting character, sort of as a as a leader. Uh, he, I mean, I, I don't know a whole lot about his background, but I understand his rise to power was was interesting, and it was also his, he has a family connection um, to through his father to the CCP, um, and at, at one point he was quite prominent in, 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 in the party. Is, 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 that, is that what happened? And how did, how did he get to his point, to the point that he is now, which is the, probably the longest serving, or definitely the longest serving um, leader of the state? Mm. So um, if you don't mind me advising another podcast, um, <laughs> while I'm <laughs> on this it. podcast, <laughs> the, the Economist did a, a podcast called The Prince, uh, yeah. which basically is like eight episodes of Xi Jinping's life. Um, and, and, you know, a few of the things that you see from that was that, you know, it's called the prince because he's not, he is one of the quote unquote princelings. Uh, so his father, Xi Zhongxun, um, was, was, was one of the original revolutionaries, uh, who rose up um, within the party ranks. Uh, and so he was brought up in Beijing amongst the other party elites and the kids of the other party elites. Uh, but. Once the Cultural Revolution hit um, in the 1960s, and basically the Cultural Revolution was when uh, Mao Zedong, who had been sidelined from power, uh, decided that um, the youth of China needed to have that revolutionary spirit. So he created a sort of a, a chaos, um, and there were you know a whole bunch of teenagers called Red Guards running around um, criticizing people and having sort of little factional warfare, and you know people were denounced and people were purged. Xi Jinping was purged which was Xi Jinping's father, um, and which meant that they were on the out. Um, and he was eventually set to, sent to the rural areas uh, where for re-education. Um, and when he got back, he made a very, uh, I think, astute political decision, which was that instead of getting involved in uh, politics within Beijing, in the sort of central government affairs, uh, he went out to the the countrysides, and he 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 basically was a provincial leader for a very very long period of time, um, kept himself clean, uh, and that allowed him to be both a princeling, but not a princeling that was tainted by um, sort of infighting amongst the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, so once he got into power, as you'll remember, everyone was thinking, this guy's going to be a a, a major reformer, um, and actually what it turned out to be was that he was more of the Sort of traditional ideological mold of the Chinese Communist Party, and I think we're seeing that play out today. That's quite interesting that his father was purged, and yet he's able to, I guess, shake those uh, that I guess reputation on his family because it's it, and and then become leader. Is it? Did that? Did that almost help him get go on that journey because he was able to um, sort of, um, I guess, restart his own 
um, journey or, or, or how did that actually work? Because often your family, your whole family is sort of marginalized if, if you're if one of your family members is purged. Yeah, so um, a, a couple of things there, you know, a lot of people were purged in the 1960s and sort of fell out um, with Mao. And that was almost Mao's favorite game was was to play sort of court politics and who's on the in, who's on the out. You're on the in for a while and then suddenly you're on the out. Um, and so when Deng Xiaoping got into power in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the 70s and 80s, he, he tried to basically bring everybody back and say, because um, he had also been purged um, twice. Uh, and so he brought everybody back and said, let's, let's stop this. This is silly. Um, let's institutionalize power the best that we can um, and not go back to that sort of old school um, cultural revolution days of who's in, who's out, purging people. Um, and so uh, what Xi Jinping has, has done quite successfully, I think, is that he's sort of built this into his origin story. Um, you know, all good rulers or superheroes need an origin story. Um, and particularly in a communist country where, you know, struggling is a very important part of being of, of, of the, the ideology of, of communism, uh, that, that the fact that he went down to the rural areas and had hardships and struggled through them and then prospered and you know came out better than before uh is is very useful for him did his time if you will with the with the people and then was able to sort of reflect on that interesting hmm. how, how has he how has he changed now that he's coming into his third term from when he first came to power to today as the leader obviously he's been will have matured into the role um, but did you notice an ideological shift or a, a, a change in how he operates? Mm, you know, it's, it's quite hard to say. I mean, I think uh, if you if you read the People's Daily on the day that the Congress happened, you'll see that there's an incredibly, incredibly large photo of Xi Jinping on the front page. Yeah. Um, you know, it's excessive. Um, Similar to the one with Mao. I, someone sent me an email yeah. with with three different sort of um, chairman and and this one was definitely um, more male like than 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 any one than anyone else since. Yeah, so so I think you know that sort of shows that there is this um, sort of centralization of power, but you know it's it's not just about the party now; it's also about Xi Jinping. So sort of he, he talks about being the, the core leadership um, and also this increasing intolerance. And you know China was always. Uh, particularly on sensitive issues like governance and politics, and has always been quite intolerant um, of dissent. There's this intolerance of things that are not part of the Xi Jinping worldview. Um, and so I would you know, say that we're seeing a lot of continuity, but that continuity is on this direction of travel where you have um, uh, uh, Xi Jinping as the core leader and um, people... Uh, following along or having to follow along uh, in terms of his ideological vision for for how where China should go. Righto. Um, the country is also facing headwinds on economic fronts, and um, which is playing into the I guess the world we operate in, financial markets, and, and investing on behalf of our clients. How do you? What do you think are the the main drivers impacting the economy at the moment? There, obviously, there's housing the um belt and road projects are still um underway i think um and uh and and uh, you know obviously there's uh, sort of the geopolitical tensions that are sitting across it what, what what do you look at when you're trying to get a sense of that those the drivers and and that are impacting um yeah the broader economy across china which is as, as you mentioned earlier now the second biggest in the world having just recently pipped japan yeah, so um, there's a couple of things, I think. So, so the first thing is, uh, going back to something I was talking about briefly before, if you go back to 2007, 2008, um, uh, Wen Jiabao, who was the premier at the time, um, made a, a statement that shocked a lot of people where he was talking about China being uh, unbalanced and the economic model being unsustainable. Um, and part of that is sort of, 
creating uh, more domestic consumption, uh, creating more balance between rural areas and urban areas, um, development balance between the east coast of China and the central and western regions of China, um, and moving away from this sort of export-led growth model. Uh, and if you look at Japan, uh, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, uh, the other sort of East, East Asian dragons, when they were going through their rapid growth phase, they basically did the same things. Um, which was to urbanize quickly, to have lots of foreign direct investment, uh, invest in manufacturing, uh, use their compar comparative advantage in terms of cheaper labor, um, but also you know, incredibly strong work ethics to industrialize, to invest heavily in construction um, and to export their way to development. And that's what China's done as well, uh, but on a far larger scale, of course, because there's 1.4 billion people in China. But what hasn't happened is China to move out of that growth model into a, a, a more sustainable, probably lower um, uh, growth rate type development over the next few decades. Um, and so that's the principal challenge that they will have to face over the next few decades. And it's a little bit unclear how they're, they're going to, to, to do that. There's a thing called the new development paradigm. Um, which I'd be watching carefully uh, to see if there's any sort of clues about what they're going to focus on. There's also things like the dual circulation policy, uh, which talk more about um, ensuring that their international trade is to support domestic uh, trade and to promote more domestic brands, to, mo to promote um, uh, moving up the value chain uh, in terms of uh, high-tech areas and to promote um, domestic champions. Um, and there are a few um, domestic champions in China already, of course. Um, but the other challenge there is that that's come at a time. Um, so China's not yet a, an advanced economy. It's still um, an upper middle economy. Um, but at the same time, the deterioration of China's relations with a lot of advanced economies, um, not just uh, America and increasingly Europe, um, but also Japan and South Korea, uh, has have really um, hit some problems as well, means that they are having to manage that deterioration of, of relations and perhaps a hesitancy to invest in the Chinese market. Um, some, some people, some businesses within China, foreign businesses and foreign people are concerned about the direction that the Chinese economy is going and so they're leaving. Others are saying that, you know, they'll put their money where their mouth is and they'll, they'll ride it out and it's the greatest long-term um, uh, benefit for their companies. Um, but there are all, all of these challenges. And then, of course, on top of that, sort of um, creating a lot of instability is the um, dynamic uh, COVID zero policy, uh, which is, is basically very similar, um, but more um, extreme, I would say, uh, than um, very similar to the types of lockdowns that New Zealand had uh, when COVID was first discovered in the New Zealand um, population, um, which is basically what can we do? We can all stay home. Um, and so you have this really strict dynamic COVID zero policy, which makes it hard for supply chains to function in the way they should, uh, makes it hard for consumers to have confidence. Uh, and so that uh, creates an uncertainty about how China will exit out of that strategy when um, uh, particularly Xi Jinping and the government have put so much on sort of saying that they are different to countries in the West, particularly America, where they argue that they bungled COVID um, and that China is not going to do that because it has such uh, concern for its people. So there's that. And then, of course, the property market is really symptomatic of that, which is, is basically just over investing and leveraging too much capital. Um, you know, people putting people having mortgages for houses that are not even built yet, uh, and then and, and trying to just keep building. And if you know, once it stops or there's a, a lack of demand, uh, then it can quite easily fall over, as you saw with, with Evergrande. Um, so it will come down to whether or not local governments can find new sources of income and can sort of absorb some of that economic pain. It's a little wonder. Jason, that the Chinese yuan is at its 14-year low <laughs> when you sort of set set up set out what what's going on in the economy. I wanted to touch on that COVID policy. It's on one hand, you can you can kind of understand um, at the start as we all did, all countries around the world locked down. But um, you know, there's been a lot of moving on. Even New Zealand has moved on to you know pretty much have no restrictions. 
is is it political why they're still in lockdown or is it um is it medical you know they don't they don't have the widespread successful vaccines perhaps as as the west did because they relied on their own and the the efficacy was lower or or is this a is this something as simple as um some commentators saying is the zero covid policy was president xi's policy and they can't really remove it now until until everybody's vaccinated otherwise it will show it failed can we read too much into it or is is there some things that we can look at the covid policy to get a hint at perhaps what's going to go happen in china over the over the next few years Mm, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I'd love to give you a well thought out and intelligent answer. <laughs> but I'm sure like, anything you say will, will it, appear like that. So. It's way easier to ask these questions than answer them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it confuses me, I, I have to say. Um, I, I mean, I think there's a, a couple of rational reasons would be that, the, the, that, yes, China is the second largest economy in the world, but in many ways, it's still a developing country. Um, and in particular, the healthcare system is not as uh, strong and well-developed, particularly in poorer parts of China, um, that, it, that it would need to be to deal with sort of a major pandemic. So when New Zealand opened the borders, we had, you remember those months where the hospitals were under a lot of pressure. I um, mean, we'd expect to see that in China and you know, particularly in a year of the Congress or next year, um, the year of the National People's Congress, um, we could see that that may be sort of politically unfeasible for China. Uh, uh, I mean, there's there's some extreme interpretations which suggest that it's you know it's it's useful at this time for China to to, to be a bit more closed. Um, I'm not sure. I, I sort of go with that. Um, and then the, the 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 discussions on the vaccines. I mean, the vaccines. I think from from what I've read are not quite as good as some of the other other vaccines, um, but they're not bad. Um, and they could work uh, in the same way that they've worked in say the New Zealand case. Um, so, so I think a lot of it does, as you suggest, come down to sort of staking political legitimacy on the idea that China has handled COVID better than a lot of other countries. I mean, they, they, they declared a people's war and they snuffed it out in Wuhan as it spread all around the world. Um, and I think they're finding it hard to, to sort of pedal back on that. Uh, at the same time, because it was a people's war, because Xi Jinping put so much political capital into it, you're not going to have, as you did in New Zealand, a whole bunch of newspaper commentators start saying, you know, maybe we should think about this or maybe we should consider doing something different. Uh, the, the Chinese media doesn't work in the same way. The Chinese media is more like an amplifier of um, policies and views from the top. Um, and so I think that does make it hard to correct. Um, and then one does also tend to wonder uh, when you have uh, someone who's become the core leader, become so solidified in their power uh, about whether or not there are people uh, that can, you know, say to Xi Jinping, actually, maybe we should try something different. Yeah, to, to try and, I guess, avoid the the Wellington moment, but on a bigger scale in China, if it, if, if it continues, but it's, it's, um, it's also harder to do that because of, you know, we know what history is in history, what's happened in China, where there has been dissent, but it's, it's an uh, in interesting case of, um, if it is political, it's, it's uh, political decisions that are, are really hindering the economy and, and with, with what's going on in the currency, any other sort of more shorter term economically driven country ourselves included would perhaps have got rid of the policy because of economics when you have a, that longer term vision then perhaps you don't you don't feel the need to as much mm. yeah i mean we're all trying to balance um um optimum public health outcomes with um economic outcomes and of course they're you know interacted if the population are really really sick that's bad for the economy but then again if the population are healthy but they can't go to work then that's also a problem so you know I, I think I think something will have to change in China, um, and you know there's there's a lot of people in Shanghai and other parts of China who complained incredibly loudly uh, for China on social media about some of the things that that happened there in terms of the sort of the snap lockdowns that were going on there, uh, and also a lot of um, foreign business people and foreigners who live in China that are really important for China's engagement with the global economy are increasingly just saying enough is enough, I, I, I can't do it anymore. Um, and I think in the long term, that has really negative implications for China. I'm just not sure if the leadership are aware of that yet.
we've, we've, we've taken a different path in our, I guess, New Zealand, um, in our relationship with China compared with Australia and the tensions they've had with China over the last sort of five years particularly. Do you, I mean, how, how do you think, how, how, what are the differences in how we balance those things off? Because we're both, they're both our, China's for both countries' largest trading partner. And, um, and I'm aware that there have been times when it's actually sort of driven a wedge between the ANZAC relationship, the difference between how we interact with China. What, what do you make of that? You know, and, and how, how do you think we should look at Australia? Yeah, I think um, I think that New Zealand and Australia have approached China in pretty much the same way. Um, if I look at the long term, you know, New Zealand established diplomatic relations 50 years ago on the day after Australia established diplomatic relations with the PRC. Uh, and, you know, we had a free trade agreement, then Australia had a free trade agreement. Um, and, and I think that if you look at the sort of the history of the relationship, uh, there's there's a lot of commonality um, and a lot of commonality in the terms types of positions that both New Zealand and Australia have taken towards China and about sort of developing the economic relationship in particular. When things sort of started to, to change a little bit was um, around 2016-17 when Australia uh, sort of really started having um, diplomatic and political issues with China uh, in a very public way. Uh, which New Zealand didn't seem to have. And of course, then Australia got, was put in the freezer um, and didn't have those high-level meetings or engagements. And of course, then Australia also had um, uh, economic sanctions on a number of different industries put on. Uh, and, and of course, then with the previous uh, Australian government, there was sort of high level of um, um, critical rhetoric uh, on both sides, both China and Australia uh, were very, very critical of each other uh, and in the Australian case, they also joined the Quad, joined AUKUS, um, and there was sort of discussion about sort of security challenges and strategic competition with China. Um, but but actually, if you if you look at the types of policies that both New Zealand and Australia have taken to China, um, particularly in recent years, you see that they're very very similar. Um, and I would suggest that uh, up until about 2017 for New Zealand, it was you know so much activity and so much uh, flurry of, of interest and in, in investing and doing business and selling into China and all sorts of new types of political initiatives from cooperation on climate change to um, trilateral um, development projects in the Pacific uh, with China. But then after that, <clears throat> we've really seen a, a cooling of that sort of high level political engagement um, on both sides. And so when you read the Chinese press and it sort of, it goes to pains to point out uh, that, you know, New Zealand and Australia are different. I actually think there's a, a lot more similarity uh, than, 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 than difference. Um, and the only, I guess, significant difference I would suggest is that in the New Zealand case, there's, there's less of a security dimension to our discussions of China. There's plenty of human rights um, criticism of China and New Zealand and also political statements, um, but we don't seem to have the same type of security discussions that Australia does. And so perhaps that's the the thing that that really pushed Australia's relationship with China over the edge. Interesting. And, and, and so when you think about where it takes us to next, do you, how do you see, you know, over the next five years, New Zealand's relationship with China developing politically and then also for I guess exporters and and many of the listeners on our call have um, you know commercial uh, connections to, to China or, or, or family connections too but in the commercial sense how um, how do you think that uh, business people should look at their interactions with China um, so I think that from an economic perspective, New Zealand's economic relationship with China is on a really strong footing. Um, and there is goodwill on, in both the Chinese government and the New Zealand government to maintain the type of political relationship that would allow um, that continuous flourishing of the economic relationship. Um, and so that's all positive, I think. And there's a complementarity in, in terms of our economies in that we buy a lot of stuff from China that we need. 
um, that they make and that we don't make. Um, and our products are also highly valued in the Chinese market and get and, and come at a premium. Um, but then on the other hand, I think that the world is in a very, um, uh, the world is in, in quite a strange moment. Um, we're hearing a lot of rhetoric out of uh, Chinese officials about how the world is changing, about how we need to move away from the type of uh, international uh, system and, and sort of security system that has sustained the post-war years. Uh, and how that plays out is, is unknown, um, but quite concerning, I think. And so if I was a business person, which I'm not, I'm an academic, I like sitting in my office and reading books and writing stuff. Um, but if I was a business person, I would be not just factoring in opportunity, um, but I would also, whilst factoring in those opportunities which are there, I would also be considering very carefully uh, questions of risk. Um, and in those, and the, the question I would ask myself is, if I had to shift, if there was, for example, if a minor party got into the New Zealand government and then started talking about, for example, how they thought Taiwan was a real country and that it's ridiculous the way the New Zealand government talks about Taiwan or something, which would be, you know, incredibly sensitive political issue for the Chinese government, uh, then, you know, it's possible that, that, that we could go the way of Australia or what happened in uh, South Korea when the THAAD uh, de missile defense system was, was deployed there by the United States um, and, and the relationship broke down there, or with Norway when, when they... Um, the, the, the Nobel Committee awarded Liu Xiaobo, um, a, a well-known Chinese dissident, the Nobel Peace Prize, and then for, all of a sudden, um, Norwegian salmon couldn't make it into China. You know, I think these things need to be factored in. Um, and then on the other side of that, as I, as I mentioned previously, I'd also be thinking if I wasn't an agribusiness exporter, but I was looking at other types of collaborations, I would be uh, considering very carefully uh, the, the mood and the sort of the, the things that have been happening uh, in terms of the bifurcation of the tech space, um, particularly between the US and China, uh, and thinking more long-term about uh, which partners would be more valuable for the type of business that I was in doing. Well, that's a thoroughly comprehensive answer. Um, hey, Jason. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really, really interesting discussion. Obviously, um, in your role, you get to uh, explore what's going on there from lots of different perspectives, and I'm, um, you know, we're delighted that you had, you know, that we, we could you could share them with us, and um, and uh, we we you know look forward to um, you know seeing and following your academic work over the over the next while, and, and hopefully we we'll get a chance to speak again. Thanks, Stephen and James. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and I look forward to listening to the podcast more. Fantastic. Thanks, Jason. Okay. This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advice Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.